Father, thank you for the Word of God which lives in us because you put your Word in us. You've written, you sent His Word and healed them. Thank you for that Word that has come to us, that saved our souls and that comes to us so often in so many other ways, continuing to instruct and to save and to deliver and to heal. And Lord, we we stand in the presence of God today, a holy God. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for instruction. I ask today that you'd make every heart tender, the, the voice of the Spirit be heard in every heart, that understanding would go deep to the heart, the conviction of the Holy Spirit too would be granted to everybody because it's such a grace, a life-giving grace. May your word be made plain to us and may the word of God come to us today, not just as words, it's not just words. Thank you, Lord, it's not just words. But may it come to us with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction and with power. Deep understanding to the heart, then we pray. Holy Spirit, come and help us each. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Recently, our brother Phil Fisher passed away. And I had thoughts that I'd shared with the church momentarily before the funeral and at the funeral. But I want to spend a few minutes just making it plain. A lot of, you know, many of you weren't even at the funeral anyway. At the funeral, you only get a few minutes. You get a few more on Sunday morning. Make it plain some of the things that the Lord was saying at that time and some of the things that you need to be very much aware of. And especially with respect to what the Bible is actually talking about when it talks about the first resurrection and the second death. If the Bible mentions a first resurrection, there must be a second. And if the Bible mentions a second death, there must be a first. And it's a good question then to ask, well, what could the Bible be talking about? Because otherwise you read these passages, you're totally confused. We'll come to that in just a moment. There's a very interesting text in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that says that God has set eternity into the, into the human heart. And uh, yet Solomon went on. That's, he didn't finish the sentence there. He said, God has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What was Solomon talking about? No, no, no. God is beyond our understanding, although he reveals himself to us. He, he teaches us a great deal about himself and about life. And yet there's so much you hardly begin to understand about the comings and the goings of the Lord. But of course, when you have the Holy Spirit, oh, suddenly it opens up all the more. This was the plan of God all along to have a people in the earth and all the time more and more people in the earth that he would live with and walk with and give them understanding by his spirit. But still the basic truth there was God has set eternity in the hearts of men. So even, even people who know nothing, you know, they still have this sense of the eternal, sense there's something far greater. That's a wonderful thing that God has put that in the human heart and then caused so many people to be hungry for God and cause the Lord all the time trying to reach out and speak. No, we, we thank the Lord. There are four places in the Bible that refer to the second death. All four of them occur in the book of Revelation and I want to read all four to you. 
So here is the first one as early as chapter 2 in the letter to Smyrna where Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Uh, I'm going to skip the second reference and read the third and fourth and come back to the second one. But these three references all occur late in the book of Revelation. So here's the third one, Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So in fact, it uh, it tells us straight out what the second death is. There's no mystery about what is meant then by the term the second death. The fourth reference is Revelation at Sorry, what did I read there? I read 21.8. Yes, there's one I've missed here. Revelation 20, verses 14 to 15. This is the third one. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's your definition right there. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the second reference. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And you might think, well, what's the thousand years? because it makes it sound like it's a finite period. Well, it's not saying that there isn't also an eternity. It is a finite period, but it's not restricted to a thousand years. And you probably should at least understand this. The book of Revelation, I won't spend much time explaining it now. It's for another occasion, but it is a highly symbolic book and all the symbols are from the Old Testament. If you don't understand your Old Testament, if you haven't read the Old Testament and taken noted uh, noted its language and its, its metaphor and its symbols, you have no right to tell people that you think you know what the book of Revelation means, except in a very general way, the general way being the victory of Christ. The one thing that's really, really clear in the book of Revelation is the glory of the church and the victory of Christ. And you're meant to read it and soak all that up. But when it comes to the symbols, don't imagine that you know what they mean unless you are familiar with the Old Testament or at least willing to read a book that will give you light on all of that. But I'll give you more information on that later. We have right here a symbol, figurative speech, the thousand years, and even the idea of reigning for a thousand years, figurative speech. These were Jewish symbols and taken from the Old Testament. A thousand is a Jewish way of saying a very, very, very large number that can't be quantified. It's derived from multiplying 10 by 10 by 10. So it's a symbolic number, 10 in, in, in Jewish symbolism 10 is the number for completion. Now 
Seven is also the number for completion, but seven for in Jewish symbolism meant completely perfect. So in other words, perfection. But 10 means completely whole, the entire, the, the full number thereof. It's, so 10 was symbolic for that. Well, if you multiply 10 by 10 and multiply 10 by it again, in other words, you cube it, the Jewish symbolism means it's complete and it's whole, but it's so huge, it's so vast, it can't be calculated. And this is the symbol for how long Jesus will reign on earth through the church. In other words, this is the symbol representing the amount of time there will be on earth once Christ has died and resurrected and given the Holy Spirit and God himself lives amongst his people and the gospel is going out, conquering nations, transforming the world step by step by step and there be one generation after another and after another and after another and we've already had 2,000 years and we have hardly begun to exhaust the real meaning of this figure of speech, a thousand years. So it has never meant literally a thousand. It's a vast number that can't be quantified. So who knows how long human history will last, but certainly it will last long enough for all the scriptures to be fulfilled that talk about the kingdom of God but growing and growing and growing on earth until it conquers all and even then goes on for a vast period of time. So if you're around here, no, we don't believe the world's almost over. It is a fallacy that seems to be built into human nature to think that we are the most important generation and, and, and the world will end any time. It's a foolish fallacy. You may as well give it up like your ancestors before you, you will grow old and be buried and other generations will come. God is a God of generations. The Bible's very clear that very, very big in the heart of God is this rising of generations. The Psalms say, your sons will take the place of your fathers. The scriptures say, a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children generational change. No wonder he said, go forth and multiply generations one after another. In fact, you will fi find no less than five, five references in the Old Testament where, it's, where it talks not of reigning a thousand years, but rather it says that he will show his mercy and his loving kindness to a thousand generations. You see the same figure of speech, a thousand, a thousand generations. Now, if you took it literally, just if you took it literally and nothing else, a thousand generations, well, how long's a generation? And if you said, well, let's have quick generations, you know, 25 year turnarounds, that's 25,000 years. Anyway, I didn't intend to go there. It's not literal. But it's just that you've got to get your head around this scripture that says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But in other words, these ones who have the first resurrection and over whom the second death ultimately has no power, 
they're priests of God in Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. If you go back to Revelation chapter 5, it says of those who are bought by the blood that we've been made priests of God and of Christ and we will reign upon the earth. It's talking the same crowd. So this reference to reigning is something that happens here on earth in time in this generational period. In other words, there's going to be a very, very long period of history in which people who are the Lord's, who have the Holy Spirit, who are reigning in life. Now, you'd have to ask then, what does it mean to reign in life? It means a lot of things, but I'll, and, and I don't have time to deal with that today, but ultimately the church from the beginning has grown and grown and grown in the world until today the church is the largest living organism in the world and has been for a long time is the largest living organism that has ever existed on the planet, ever will exist on the planet, and every day it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Something like 20,000 people come to Jesus every day in the world, and the percentages of the world that believe in Christ are growing all the while, just as the Bible said all along they would. And so ultimately, the values of Jesus the teaching of Jesus, the word of Jesus, the power of Jesus is spreading in the nations. In fact, scripture says of the reign of the Lord Jesus over the nations that he will extend his scepter through Zion. And scripture defines Zion as the body of Christ. In other words, the church. So the rule and the reign of Jesus is progressively being extended throughout the world and if you know history at all, you will know a little bit about the fact that the teaching of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the val Christian values have more and more transformed the thinking of the entire planet. I could give you lots of examples of it, but I've got to move on. Our brother Phil Fisher passed away on the 27th of December. And I knew that he was passing and, and I was thinking about the, you know, what the reality was, what the truth of, what was the word of God concerning him and to us. And of course, quite often in life, that scripture has come back to me that, has, that says, it's Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Take a look at it, it's on the screen. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Jesus said that not a sparrow falls to the ground and he, his father doesn't know all about it. And that his father cares for sparrows. How much more than the life of his saints? No, you're in his hands. And it's for you also to believe that that as, as you get older and you come to that time of your fading and passing, your life is valuable, it is important. The whole idea of sanctity of life is hugely important. God is with you, grace is with you. He, he is receiving you under himself. A transition is going on, but it's holy ground. And I said here to the church, you know, a month ago or more, 
that to, to be in such a circumstance where someone is passing from this life to the next and you, you sit with them, you talk with them, you pray for them, perhaps they're unconscious, you are on holy ground. God is present. I thank the Lord for it. There was a scripture that came up for discussion at the time because it, uh, it was felt by someone in the family that uh, he was meant to recover and be healed. This is the scripture from Psalm 118 verse 17. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And this scripture was given to a few people and someone thought, oh, it means he's not going to die, he's going to live. But I knew the moment I heard those words, I was not talking about that. It's, it's talking about it, life and death in, in, you know, uses this terminology, but it's speaking about something else altogether. When someone is elderly, like dear Phil was 90, when someone is elderly, the question family and friends will have is, you know, where are they in the Lord? Are they saved or not? Have, have they really received grace? And I felt that that was the question the Lord was answering by giving this scripture. Concerning his passing from this life, I felt the Lord was saying he would not die See, I will not die but live. It's talking about the second death. I will not die but live. It's talking about this, this ultimate life that you live forever and that it is in, it's, it's, in this, uh, it's in this resurrected life. It's in this eternal form of life of which it would be true to, to say and will proclaim what the Lord has done because that also is a very active life, more so than this. In fact, when I read the context of that verse, I couldn't help but hear Phil, Phil, Phil's voice. It was as if Phil himself, more than he ever had before, was realizing something and speaking the truth. And this is before he'd passed. I, I was getting this sense. I read you the, the little context. It says, the Lord is my strength and my song. Just imagine, just imagine Phil Fisher suddenly realizing it's, it's better than he thought. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Open for me the gates of righteousness. The next line says, I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. While... Uh, Phil was still with us. I would go up and and um, and pray and visit. But one one night I went up with my old Bible and I've, I just felt to take my old Bible and sit and read. And and got up there and there was no one around and I I read to him passage after passage. And um, here's two little quotes from what I read. I. I read these words from John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And then even more pointed, John 11, 23, just listen to this the phraseology here for a moment. Jesus said to her, this is Lazarus's sister. Lazarus had died. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, the use of the word die there, leave that on the screen, please. See the fifth last word. Jesus there uses the word die in terms of physical death. But now in the next verse, he's about to make, make the most curious statement. Everybody just pay attention to this next scripture we put up, John eleven twenty six. He adds this phrase, Jesus adds, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, if he was still talking physical death, this would be the strangest statement to make because for one, it's never worked out this way. And for two, it's contrary to scripture because scripture says it is appointed unto man to die once and after this, the judgment. And that scripture there is referring to physical death. And if, if we compare these two statements of Jesus, the one I read a moment ago and the one that's on the scripture, on the board, he said, let me just read it to you again. He said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now this is you. If you're a believer, you've been born again, you have the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven, your name is written, you will grow old and die. But even so, you will live. You'll live beyond the grave. So that's the first statement Jesus is making, but he makes a second statement, at least in our translations in the same sentence, and seems to contradict it. And this is what I'm trying to explain to you. The, the bit that's on the board is the bit that's curious. Where Jesus added, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If he says shall never die, he can only be talking of eternal life. He cannot possibly be speaking of physical death. So what does he mean by, and everyone who lives? And this is the key to understanding first resurrection, second resurrection, first death, second death. Everyone who lives. If Jesus knows full well that he has people who are alive already, even though they're still in the body, it means that you have experienced the first resurrection. A second resurrection will come because the Bible at great length talks about the resurrection of the dead. A day is coming. By the way, this thousand years which is a, a vast period, we do not know how long will end. The Bible has major passages, one after another, where it describes the final appearing of Jesus, his coming in power and glory with angels. He comes to judge the world. He comes to judge the righteous and the wicked. The Bible over and over teaches what is called a general resurrection. If ever you hear the phrase, a general resurrection, it means, Every single person who's ever lived is resurrected. 
but some are resurrected to life and some are resurrected to death. And that is the judgment. There is a final judgment of all, small and great, the Bible says, judged for what they have done while in the body. So there, there will be a general resurrection at the end of time if you are born again. Now, the, the phrase born again is only a translation of the Greek, which actually says born from above. If you've been born from above, or as Jesus also added, born of the spirit. No, you know, no, no wonder he set eternity in the heart of men, that, that is mankind, because every one of us are meant to have a heart that inquires and look for him, create an opening because he's always trying to talk to us. His grace always reaching out to us because he wants to bring us into this first resurrection, this being born from above. Jesus, John chapter three, you know, speaking to Nicodemus says it's not, it's not enough to be born of water. You must be born of the spirit. If you're in your mother's womb, you're born of water. You're held, you're held in water. You know, the waters break, ah, time to be born. He says, you must be born of water and of the spirit, you must be born from above. And it's this business of being born from above, commonly called being born again, which is the first resurrection, because until you are born of the spirit, you are in death. You, how did you get there? You were born in that death. This is where I wanted to show you, Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17. And this is what he had to say to Adam. The Lord God commanded the man saying, now what's God about to do? He's made a perfect world. He's made man and woman without sin and with a, a pre-existing relationship with God. No evil in the world, but he has, he sets up and he has to set up. He has no choice. God must set up a moral choice. We're not robots. He didn't intend to make a robot. You, you're made sinless, but you're not perfect unless from the heart you can make a moral choice and get it right. And so the Lord establishes what is, is no more, no less than a choice for mankind as represented in our forefathers. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you, must, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was nothing special about the tree. There were, there were a lot of fruit trees in the garden. They were all, it was all good fruit. They were all good to eat. The Lord simply picked out a tree that was in a prominent place, no doubt. He would have put the tree in a prominent place. It, the, the, the fruit wasn't magic. But a moral choice is placed upon One tree because man has to have a, a, perfect, a perfecting of his nature if he is ever to be really one with God. Of this particular tree, if you eat, you will die. They saw that it was good for food. 
Good to make them wise. And they ate. And they died. Now the, the immediate outcome was not physical death. But by Bible definition, they died. This is the first death. So the first death, by implication, is not physical death. And when the Bible talks about the second death, that's not physical death. So the Bible is talking about something else. It's talking about something that is, is on the inside of you. Other than physical death, other than the death of the body, the Bible alludes to and speaks of the first death and a second death. And the first death is this thing that happened in our forefathers that called the, caused the human race to fall into sin, corruption to come into this world. This world is not the way God made it. It has been corrupted by the sin of man. We're, we all suffer that effect, but this is why Jesus came. It's why he took on our flesh. It's why he died on the cross. Notice that the thing that was significant about Jesus was for him to become the redeemer of the human race, he had to live the perfect life of obedience. He had to be obedient in a way Adam was not obedient. And then he had to die for Adam's sin, take upon himself the penalty of sin. This is what the cross is all about. And this is why it is as a result of the cross, we can have a resurrection. As a result of the resurrection, ascension to glory, we can have the Holy Spirit being poured out into this world so that God finally gets what he always wanted to live amongst us and walk amongst us and we would be his people and he would be our God. And this gospel more and more takes over the whole world. And generation by generation, that's exactly what it does but when you were born as a little boy or a little girl, you were born already in the death of Adam and you needed to be brought back to life. And that's what being born from above is. So for all of you who have been born from above, for all of you who have been born of the Spirit, you have already been granted the first resurrection. And this is why Scripture says that those who participate in the first resurrection, the second death will have no power over them. That is just the most wonderful thing. And this is the easiest and plainest way to explain it. And please understand that the same person, the Apostle John, who wrote all those references to first resurrection and second death in the book of Revelation is the same author that is writing these words in the Gospel of John where he's quoting Jesus who says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So you've got to put this John 11:26 alongside of Revelation 26 to see the picture as well as other scriptures. Acts 4:12. salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's first resurrection right there. That's you being saved, born again. When you hear the gospel of your salvation and your heart believes, 
and there's, you, you sense this call of God and you yield and he takes hold of you. Oh, I, I still remember that day. In that moment, you were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's not a kingdom of darkness, by the way. You don't ever use the language that you were transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom. I hear people talk like that, but it's not biblical language. Satan doesn't have a kingdom. There is a domain of darkness. In other words, there, there was great darkness over which, you know, he held great power. He, you know, all that. But the Bible stops short of ever calling it a kingdom. Never, ever called Satan a king. Domain of darkness, call it what you like, but it's not a kingdom. But you were in it. You were bound in it. You were lost in sin and death until the gospel awakened you by the very the grace of God came to you and stirred you and awakened you and you yielded. It's about the only thing you can do is, is give in. You cannot save yourself, but you can yield to his desire and he will save you. That yielding to his desire is, comes from faith. You believe and you give in. He saves you. First resurrection. Praise God. You need to make sure you're a participant that you have properly participated in the first resurrection, that you have in fact been delivered from the domain of darkness, <clears throat> placed in the kingdom of his son. Thank God. Hebrews 9:27. just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So now we go back and read Revelation 26 again. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's you. This is why, you know, if you're in the Catholic Church, the saints, whoever they think is a saint, they're all people who are dead, you know, who have worked miracles and they lived a long time ago. And I'm sure they're all saints. But if you take the Bible use of the word saint, it is a word referring to everyone who is alive in the church right now and a believer. In other words, if you're here this morning, you've been born from above, you're in Christ, you're in faith, you love the Lord, according to scripture, you are his holy saints. And modern translations often, they don't say saints, they say his holy ones but that's what it's talking about. You are the saints of the Lord. So now look at it again, blessed and holy. Uh, Revelation 20 verse six is where we're meant to be. That's if we can find that and put it on the board there for us, I want everyone to soak it in again. Now, admittedly, the context of this verse in the book of Revelation has all kinds of convolutions that need explaining, just like I've already explained a thousand years there's other things in that passage that when you read it, you think, well, how could that be? No, wait for the explanation and you get a little bit more next weekend. But look at it closely. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. See, the first resurrection is what makes you the saints of the Lord. Over such, the second death has no power. That's good news. And the added bit on, but they will be priests. You're priests now. You don't become a priest 
after you die and go to heaven. This is very, very clear message in the scriptures. You are priests now, according to Paul in the book of Romans, according to John in earlier chapters in the book of Revelation, you rule and reign in life now because you are priests of God. What do priests do? What does it, you know, it doesn't sound very fashionable to be a priest until you hear what a priest is and discover that it's you. What does a priest do? Three things. It's very simple. Be very clear what the duties of a priest are. If you've been made a priest, what do you do? What's your job? Well, here they are. A priest is someone who represents other people to God. Secondly, a priest is someone who represents God to other people. And thirdly, a priest is someone who offers sacrifices. Now think about these three things. Do you represent other people to God? Yes, you do. This is your job. You pray for them. You come to the Lord and say, Lord, please help so-and-so. Lord, we did it this morning. We were praying for healing for people. They were priestly duties. We were, when every one of us prayed this morning and believed for those young women, or believed for that young man in New Zealand, or, or believed for our brother Andrew, we were fulfilling a priestly function. So intercession, petition, prayer, not only that, when the Bible says pray for the government, pray for kings and anyone in government. Uh, when you do, you're a priest. It's a, you know, pray for the times you live in, that we might have peaceable times. When you do, you're a priest. And so you're representing God, uh, you're representing other people or circumstances to God. You're taking them to God. Scripture says you've got access, access to the Father by one spirit through Christ. Uh, come boldly, come confidently, it says, to the throne of grace and, and there you'll find mercy. You're a priest. That's, that's, it's priests who come to altars. And then you're representing God to other people. Sure, you, you let your light shine. You're salt in this earth. You, you have a word of testimony. You go to someone in need and say, you know, I can help you, but I know someone who can help you even more. You, you meet the need of other people. You give generously to help other people. You're a priest. Priestly duties. And then what about sacrifices? Now, priests always offer sacrifices. It's your job. And, and the Bible, the opening point of this in the Bible is Romans 12. Offer your bodies, it says. You're the saints, remember. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, your whole life, your whole life is a sacrifice unto God. You're not, you're not going to bring animals and kill it and pour out the blood like Old Testament priests. No, that, that's gone. See, that was symbols of Christ. He fulfilled the symbols. Now we're living. He wants living sacrifices now. In other words, he wants your service. You go to help people, you're making a sacrifice. You give your money, it's a sacrifice. You bring your offerings to God. None of that turn up, turn up in public worship as a, as a whole team of people together. We come on Sunday morning, worship God. We're offering a sacrifice of praise. Where you give thanks to God, by the way. Anytime you give thanks to God, you are fulfilling a priestly duty. And do you know that the giving of thanks does something rather, rather significant, hugely important. 
in the spirit realm to shift this world. Something, there's something about the giving of thanks to God that really helps to shift the world. You should be busy every day. Make sure every day, thankful, grateful, expressing thanks. One of the most important things you can do as a priest. So you're clear on all this now, what a priest is? It's you. It turns out it's you in your service to God, your service to other people. You're willing to give time, give love, give energy, sacrifice things, give them up so other people can have them. Yield yourself in service to the Lord. You're a priest of God. Praise the Lord. And this is what it means. Take a look at it. It's still on the board. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That ruling and that reigning is going on right now. But guess what? This is good news too. We rule, according to the book of Romans, chapter 5, we rule and reign in life. In other words, in the body, in Christ Jesus. But there's more because death is not the end. And when you pass from this life to the next, in other words, you pass through physical death, you're in Christ. The resurrection of the body hasn't taken place yesterday, but somehow in the spirit realm, in the heavenly realm, you are in, where do you think Christ is right now? He's raised up above the highest heavens it is, it is from the highest heavens. He rules over heaven and earth and you're in him. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're in Christ. This ruling and reigning continues. And so somehow, even out of the body and passed on to be with the Lord, somehow your love, your prayers, your concern for this world your standing in agreement with Christ still has a great deal to do with the ultimate victory of the gospel in the nations. In other words, you don't just pass into some blissful state where you float on a cloud or play a harp. There's a, the kingdom is vast. The kingdom is huge. You're not sitting around for eternity wait, waiting for you know, earth time to be over so we can get on with this thing. Believe me, it's a very active life being in Christ. And uh, this is why Paul said, by the way, and you must have read these words. He said, I do not know whether to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, or to remain, which is better for you. But he said, I, I believe I will remain because, you know, I can, I'm of useful service. But they're telling words where he says, you know, is better by far. There's something about it that is not empty, but so rich, so purposeful. Well, we're nearly done. I think I've explained all of that pretty well. Let's read this passage together. Re Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Notice the plural, the books. 
There's one book called the Book of Life, which lists all the names. But there are other books in which are recorded the full history of every person who ever lived. They were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You might have one final question. take a moment to answer before we close. And your question might be, oh, I thought if you were saved, all your sins were forgiven and, and you're saved and you're in Christ and, and it's a case of just, you know, well done. And how does this judgment apply if, you know, if there's a record of how you've lived? How does that fit in if, if judgment is based on merit or your works? and not just on the merit of Jesus. And so by way of brief explanation, yes, you've been born again because of the merit of Jesus and your name is in the book of life because of your faith in Jesus, so you're saved. But in the judgment, your life is assessed. The value of your life, you will be rewarded for your service. And there are great reward for some saints and not so much reward for others. I read you this little brief passage before we close so that you know that what I'm saying to you is gospel. We go to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13 to 18. And he's now speaking only about Christians. The previous passage was speaking of the unsaved. Each one's work will become manifest. That's your work we're talking about now. Your work for Christ. Your work as a priest. Your priesthood will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, ah, foundation, you think, well, Well, what foundation? I didn't know. Of course you knew there was a foundation. Scripture tells you very clearly the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Or to put it in a better shorthand, Christ is the foundation. We sing that old hymn, Christ our foundation. In other words, what are you building on Christ? What are you building on the word of Christ that was brought to us by the apostles? The apostles and prophets, we got a book full of the work of apostles and prophets and they present Christ. Apostles and prophets lay down their lives to bring you Christ. You build on Christ. Your life built. That's what it's talking about. If Verse 14, back to that. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation... It's no good you go and doing your own thing. You better do the thing God is doing. Work on the foundation. If it survives, you'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. 
though he himself will be saved. Now there's some assurance there, isn't there? Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What does that mean? When we went to college, Hazel and I, Salvation Army Training College in Sydney, our room was up on the first floor of a very old building. And I look at this thing, it was a wonderful building, but I thought, it's a fire trap. If fire breaks out in this building, we're heading out this window, even though we're a floor up. So I said to Hazel, we can never go, afford to go to bed not properly dressed. From now on, pyjamas that you'd be happy to see in, be seen in in public. Because if there's a fire, we're going out this window. <laughs> and that's what this is talking about. Imagine someone escaping a fire, because it actually says this here. That's what, you know, it's pretty plain. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only... Another translation would say, but only as someone escaping through the flames. Imagine if you wake up in the middle of the night, say it's a hot night and all that on were your boxes. And you leap out the window and the whole house collapses behind you and all you own in the whole world are your boxer shorts. So that's the picture here, escaping as through the flames. What did Paul say about this work? He said, the fire, you, you've got to read earlier in the chapter to pick this up, but it says, the day that tries by fire We'll test everyone's work and some, some people's work will appear as gold and silver and precious stones. But some people's work is wood, hay and stubble and it's just burned up. What's the difference? Gold, you're going to build with gold. Gold represents the authority of the Lord Jesus. In other words, your submission to authority, you're under headship, you're in the, you're in the church, you, you, you know, your life is yielded, you're walking, you're in the body, you're in Christ and the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus is over you and you live under his authority. Gold. Silver. The Bible symbol for sanctification. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse your heart, to clean out sins, to purify your motives. You're seeking the Lord. You want more of God. You want to be clean. The cleansing of your life and it's out of holiness or, or a desire for holiness and holy living that you work for Jesus. Precious stones, Bible speaks of these things as, as, the, as the good deeds you do. Work for others. Now, not to be seen, not to, not to have someone say, oh, he's such a good fellow. No, no, no. The motive comes into it. Whether you, whether you deeply care about others whether you're ready and willing to serve and lay down your life in love for other people, there's precious stones. What's the wood, hay and stubble? Well, you can make it up for yourself, but basically it's, it's when you do your own thing, independence, pride. You, 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 might, you might have healed the sick. You might have planted churches. You might have prophesied. You might have been a Bible teacher. But you do all of that thing without having the gold, silver and precious stones in place, you do it, uh, you do it for your own motives, you know, then you're into the category of, uh, you know, someone who's uh, build, pulling down their barns to build bigger. In other words, just for you. That's, that's all wood, hay and stubble. Or you filled up your life 
with nothing other than, than leisure and pleasure and sport all the while. You know, yeah, you're a Christian, go to church, but your real love, your real heart's full of other loves. It's all wood, high and stubble. Be careful. Because of this closing verse here, verse 16, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone amongst you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. How do you become a fool? So that you might become wise. This is how you do it. You come to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I don't know anything. I, I need you. I need your mind. I need your spirit. Lord, would you give me your wisdom? In other words, not relying on yourself. It goes back to that word we had from the new year. Don't rely on your own understanding. Not your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Dear friends, we're going to have a prayer. I'm going to pray for you. You're going to pray for yourself. But Moses also gave us a little prayer. Here was Moses' prayer. He said, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And you find Moses' prayer in Psalm 90, most interesting psalm. Could I recommend to all of you, not only the Moses prayer, but the truth that's in it, you've got so many days. All of us, you and I, only have so many days on earth. Life is short. If you're young, like you're a teenager, it feels like life is long. It's not long. It's long enough, though, to be substantial. It feels substantial. You're given this life for one reason. It's a trial life. What goes on in this life, the no different to Adam and Eve having a moral choice. You have a moral choice whether you live for Christ, whether you live for yourself. This is a test life. It's a trial run. And it's based on this life that one day the books will be opened and your resurrection is determined. It's not just a case either of second resurrection or second death. Now, if you're in Christ, hopefully for you, it's second resurrection all the way. But even in that, there's judgment. It is said of some of the saints of old that they persevered because they wanted a better resurrection. Oh, that's another language again. Not now just second resurrection, but better resurrection. Moses prayed, Lord, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Your days are important. Don't waste your days. The Lord does appoint for you times of leisure, times of rest. He, he, wants, he wants you in times of rest because in times of rest you might be thinking and sensing, heart choosing. It's all very important. But it, it all has to do with how the human heart goes. You've got a whole life here in which to develop the right heart, a pure heart in God's eyes and offer yourself in service to Jesus. 
Lord, teach us to number our days aright. Let's just, just come in the spirit with me now. Get into prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the life you've given us. Thank you for the first resurrection and thank you for the resurrection to come. We praise God. So glad we're in Christ. So glad we have the word of God. Thank you for Jesus. And yet here we are, O Lord, with these lives you have given us and we need to place them all the more clearly in your hand. I I pray for all those gathered today. Lord, those amongst us who are older. The, The day has not come that we cease bearing fruit. I pray, Lord, for every older person here that that they would step all the more into this grace, like those laborers in the vineyard who came only at the last hour but still were paid the day's wages. Thank you, Lord, that even if there's somebody here today that's never been born again but they're in their older years, today is the day of salvation. And I ask, Holy Spirit, lay your hand upon them right now that there be a submission in their heart to Jesus and they'll be born from above, born again to a living hope. Could I encourage everybody present, put your faith in Jesus right now. And for every young person, every young person here right now, put your faith in Jesus, turn your heart to him. Life is not about pursuing the foolish and the flippant, no. Scripture says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. There's great reward for those who seek him early. Seek him now. And in the name of the the Lord Jesus, your Lord and mine, I call you, every young person I call you right now, come, surrender your heart. Give your heart now to Jesus. And Lord, I pray, take hold of every heart. Come, Holy Spirit, enter into every heart. And thank you for the transforming work of the the living Christ. I ask, Lord, you'd make every heart holy, every heart here today in submission to the Saviour, every heart washed and made clean. Lord, would you put your word into every heart that all might become fruitful. We prayed earlier that the word of God would come to us with the Holy Spirit and with power and with deep conviction. I'd ask, Lord, that even now that power and deep conviction go deep to the heart. And Holy Spirit, would you remain in the heart of every one of these today and the days that follow, continue to teach, continue to instruct that every last one of these would bear great fruit unto God, that they would hear that word spoken in that final day, well done. Not any casual well done, but may they hear a, a really hearty well done. Good and faithful servant. Lord, I'm asking, extend the work of your spirit in the heart of us all, and make us a very fruitful people. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is our prayer. So each one of you now, just receive the Holy Spirit. Soak the presence of God. Lord, thank you for your presence. And I place upon each of you now the benediction of Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
Amen, amen, amen.